Welcome to Leaders in Conversation, a series of podcasts in which leaders share their inspirational personal leadership stories. In this episode, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Andrew Kerr. Andrew is Chief Executive of the City of Edinburgh Council, Scotland, a position he has held since July 2015 and describes as his dream job. He has been a public servant for 35 years. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Annie. What makes being Chief Executive of City of Edinburgh Council your dream job? Well, as the listeners will probably hear, I'm pretty much very Scottish, as you can uh, hear from my accent. So I've spent the vast majority of my career down south in England and Wales. I always said that I would never come back to Scotland because I enjoy living in England and Wales. Never come back to Scotland unless the job of the capital city of my country came up because I could not resist it. And uh, here I am. And I've said that for years and years. So um, it's a combination, I guess, of being a proud Scot um, and being very proud that I managed to get a job as the chief executive of my capital city. But also the challenge that that has brought because of, of course, the different UK politics that are involved in that and the whole issue about Scotland and how independent it is and having a Scottish government has made this job very different and very challenging. So it's been a fantastic opportunity. What or who made you want to become a public servant 35 years ago, Andrew? I've always wanted to have a job that I think made a difference to people. Uh, And um, several times in my career, I've had opportunities to join the private sector, which, uh, and of course, this is not true for all private sector companies, but which are very much based on how much profit do you make and how much money do you generate as part of being the organisation and the thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning is the fact that, and has done all my career, is that I feel like I'm doing something good for my community, whatever that community may be. And I've been in several different communities right throughout the UK. Uh, and then particularly now, you know, feeling I'm doing something that's good for my country as well as my capital city is giving me a lot of uh, continued satisfaction and keeps me enthusiastic about you know, the good days and bad days that we all have in doing these things. When you were growing up, what did you dream of becoming and doing? And related to that, the question of what did you do before you became a public servant? For a, a relatively short time in my younger years, I was a professional athlete. I competed in athletics at 400 metres for Great Britain and Scotland for a number of years. And, and I think probably at that time, I had no idea that I would do anything except be a professional athlete for the rest of my days, which of course is not feasible, but um, that's probably what I thought. And um, I, I got ill quite early in my athletics career, which meant that I had to think about getting a job. And um, actually my local authority offered me a job managing the athletic stadium in my home, in my hometown, which was very opportune at the time, and allowed me to think about uh, actually starting to make money uh, in a way that was not based on my physical attributes uh, and start to use my brain. I studied to be a teacher, but never ever um, taught. So I did a Bachelor of Education in Physical Education and History. And history still is the thing I spend most of my time reading. Um, 
did I decide overtly to be a public servant? I'm not sure I did. I think it was lots of ways in my younger years, it was opportune and I fell into it, but very much realized early on that I enjoyed the community part of being a, a public servant and uh, I've been there ever since. What community did you grow up in and who or what shaped who you've become, Andre? And I was very lucky to have a very stable home life. My mum and dad were very, very supportive and uh, allowed me pretty much to um, do what I wanted to do in terms of anything I aspired to be. So I learned to play the flute and play the flute to a reasonable standard. They encouraged me to take part in things like poetry competitions, etc. So the artistic part of my uh, my upbringing was... was um, well embedded and then I gave most of it up because I realized that actually I was much better at running <laughs> than I was ever going to be in the arts and faster so I um, decided that that would be what I do quite early on when I was 16, 15, 16. And I remember my tutor, my flute tutor saying to me well Andrew you can uh, practice for five hours a day and that way you'll get better or you can have an athletics career you can't do both. And um, I decided at that point that my athletics career was more important. So my mother hated that and my father loved it. So it was one of those <laughs> um, um, decisions, but continue to have a stable uh, family life. And that's a big help, I think, of course. Then I had um, a lot of people who just shaped my early upbringing, even at that point. So my coach, who's only just recently died, actually, at, at the age of 90, my coach was maybe the biggest influence in my early teen years because, I, of course, I saw him every day, every night. Um, to train and and instilled in me quite a lot of discipline, quite a lot of good values about what's important in life, what's not important in life. And Jimmy, who was my coach, was uh, an ex-miner from the Ayrshire mining fields, fell into athletics coaching um, by mistake, I think, because his son was uh, involved. But um, what a fantastic person who I've valued all my life and um, quite sad that I've lost him now because he was, we've still been in regular contact all through our lives and it's, uh, he still gave me good advice about what I should think about and what I shouldn't think about, even if I didn't agree with him all the time. I can only imagine that the, the advice he gave to you when you were practising to become a professional athlete and he was coaching you has stood you in good stead as a leader and I wonder what are some of the the parallels other than discipline so I mean there's some I can guess philosophy everybody's talented or everybody certainly in my profession at the time was talented but of course the thing that made the difference was how hard you worked and I think the whole issue about you've got to work hard however talented you think you are or however good you are you have to continue to work hard if you're going to be successfully um, successful on a regular basis. The other thing was really about focus and and making sure you were focused on the task in, in front of you and focused at what you did and making sure you performed as well as you could do at any given time, uh, no matter what the circumstances were, which were either good or bad. And I think those type of things were, in philosophy terms, were the things that he instilled in me because he was a hardworking miner. Yes. who, who um, grew up with a, in a, with a relatively hard life and, and instilled those um, values in me. But the other thing was to also 
uh, one of the things I always remember is kind of be kind to people on the way up because you they want them to be kind to you when you're on your way down. <laughs> that tribal philosophy, which is um, which has stayed with me most of my life, I think um, the philosophy of being kind to people and being good to people is something that keeps you going all through your life, whether it's professional or personal. I've always tried to live with that, sometimes more successfully than others, of course, but um, that's what you try and do. But of course, my athletics career gave me um, lots of advantages. That focus is really one of them. But also, when you get down to your blocks in front of 40,000 people in the stadium, it is a very nerve-wracking thing to do. Uh, and, you know, several times, you know, uh, being in the warm-up area and just being sick in a corner because I was so nervous um, uh, in big international meetings. Of course, that's been great stead for the rest of my career because I now am able to stand up in front of people without being nervous at all. Um, and and when I am nervous, I use the same methodology to get to conquer my nerves and just get on with the task in front of me. And that type of uh, issue. The other thing that uh, is the whole thing about team. My favourite event was not actually the individual 400 metres, but was running in the relay 4 by 400 metres, where you're dependent on other people and they're dependent on you. Uh, and I think that learning for working as a team and, and feeling good as a team together has also stayed with me. And, and I try and express that in the way I manage people, um, as I say, sometimes more successfully than others. There's so much in what you say, Andrew, that I have seen you living in your leadership around kindness and hard work. One of the things that I didn't know was that you felt so nervous about performing as an athlete in front of so many people and I can imagine that some of the listeners may be wondering what are the practices that you use to help you steady your nerves that you learnt from that time. Well I was quite an early adopter of mindfulness I think we call it mindfulness nowadays but I'm not quite sure we did at the time and I, I remember my the practice that I learned and repeated every day uh, and deliberately repeated it every day so I could use it when I needed it, was that the thought of uh, shutting your eyes, finding a corner in the warm-up area usually, sitting in a corner, shutting your eyes, and imagining you're walking down a set of stairs, and count yourself down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, that type of thing, and come up against a brick wall that you couldn't see because it was dark. You'd walk down the stairs in a brick wall. And then just imagining yourself disappearing into the wall and out the other side. And then walking back up the stairs into the light and um, being very focused about what you were wanting to do there. And I, and I still do that. So there's that one. And the other thing I learned was about problems. Because, of course, if you're trying to do anything really well, excellently, if you are distracted by problems off to one side, doesn't matter what they are, personal problems, what problems, anything then uh, you never perform at your best. So the practice that I do most nights, actually, if there's anything really worrying me, I do literally put it in a virtual shoebox. And I put the shoebox up on the shelf, virtually, and leave it there until the next day. And then I bring the shoebox back down and I deal with that issue. And that allows you to put it to one side and concentrate on the things that um, hopefully are, are more important, as opposed to being distracted by something that's gnawing away at you, worrying you. 
and that's a practice I learned when I was 18. I mean, wow. 18, 19 years old, and I've kept going, and I still do that, just put it to one side. So those type of things. So I guess that is mindfulness in, in a way. Yes. And it yeah. is about controlling your thoughts so that you're able to focus and deliver uh, more effectively. And be at your best more of Yeah, be at your best when you need to be. Yeah. yeah. Which is what athletics is all about. And being part of a team. You spoke about your being so fortunate to have had a family that supported you, but also being part of a team that supported you and then extending that outwards into the community, all things which are very important part of of your leadership. I hope I know, Anna, uh, that um, I could not be successful in doing what I'm doing unless I had a fantastic team that was supporting me. And, And I mean that both probably personally and in work sense. So, you know, my my wife and my children who are very supportive of me doing what I do, allow me to do what I do, because of course it takes a lot of time, is one of the reasons why I've been able to be be in the position I'm in. And my team at work uh, allow us to be a successful team. And and that's a whole team. I think the pandemic has taught us even more that uh, talent experience, delivery, etc., is dependent on a wide network of people that work for you, with you, and as partners to um, deliver something for your community. And, and it's emphasized it probably even more than anything else would have done. Crisis always does that. We're able to be more effective if we operate uh, as a team with a general set of values, general set of philosophies, and, and um, go forward in that way. We've been in and out of lockdown since the pandemic was formally announced just over a year ago. What has it been like leading through this period of the pandemic and and of lockdowns for you and for your team? I think it's a proper mixture because it's been the most professional challenging thing I've ever done and I'm sure nearly all my colleagues have ever done. Um, because we are not in a generation that's ever had national crisis really before us because we missed the war. This has been an extraordinary time where in lots of ways it's been enjoyable professionally, as in it's been very challenging, but actually it goes back to my values about wanting to do good for your community. There's no doubt that our whole purpose was to make sure our community was better during the pandemic and that's been emphasized almost every day of what, in what we do it's brought us together closer as a team because that purpose and it is a purpose of dealing with which undoubtedly is a horrendous situation both nationally and locally and making the best of that um, for our community and making sure that our services were dealing with the more vulnerable people in our community with the people who needed us most the quickest the very practical thing of shutting everything down at the beginning of the pandemic i mean literally shutting everything down so that people could be at home and working from home like i am today uh, and everyone doing so so i have eighteen thousand staff that work for me Thirteen thousand of those are working from home so i've got colleagues who are on the front line and i've got colleagues who are working from home and both sets have responded amazingly really and that's everything from the guys that collect our bins, because it's mostly guys, to the contact centre that's worked entirely from home all the way through the pandemic, which it was we would have thought was nearly impossible at the beginning. And 
sometimes we've had seamless services where you wouldn't have known there was any difference to the public. And that is really down to the dedication. And uh, so we have social workers and teachers and our um, cleaners and our janitors who are all keeping schools working and, and those type of things. And without complaint and without a demand for extra overtime or extra anything, because they knew they were doing good things for the community. And that's um, made me very proud, but it's also made me realise that I'm just not the only one who works for a local authority that has the same philosophy about doing good for your community. It's nearly everyone. Uh, and, and therefore, we can use that as the driver for what we do and when we have difficult times, which undoubtedly we've already had. And I've had seven or eight people, members of our uh, colleagues who, who have died during this pandemic. And we're about to have a minute's silence next week for all of them. And, and we'll be trying to celebrate the things they did for our communities as much as it is being sorry for, because I've died because of COVID. And yes. um, I'm going to have to think very carefully next week about how I express that when we actually do it. Um, and we are, But uh, it's part of that philosophy of public service that the vast majority of people who join a local authority have in their minds when they join because it's not the best paid job in the world anywhere, even for this chief executive. And it's not, uh, but it is maybe the most satisfying thing that you're able to do. It's like NHS workers being able to save lives. It's public servants right across the country being able to give a service to the community, which is valued which I think it is. Your passion for public service shines through and your absolute commitment to do good and to show kindness and to help people, whoever they are, wherever they are. And especially during this time, which has been a really difficult time. And as you mentioned, a sad time because some people have died, many people have died and everybody has had a to work in a different way and to live their lives in a, in a different way. The other thing I think that's been significant to us is there's been a, quite a bit of setting aside of politics for the good, much less party-based politics in our, with our political lords and masters and the people I work for and much more pragmatic, we need to do what's best and giving me the freedom to get on with it, which has been something I've valued. I think I've made something like five or 600 emergency legislation decisions that uh, we normally have gone through a committee or been through the politics of life and, and haven't needed to be so we could move swiftly enough and respond to the pandemic as it's happened. And of course, that still continues to happen because maybe the more difficult thing is us working out how we come back out of a pandemic um, more successfully than we did going into it. And... Um, that's actually our focus right now of our management team about renewing yes, uh, and getting better at what we did because we've learned lots of lessons from the crisis, which is uh, the good thing about crisis. That was going to be my next question. You mentioned that there were some things that you couldn't have even imagined could be done virtually and or from yeah. home that you had always assumed had to be done in the office. And I'm wondering, as you think about and reimagine the future, what are some of the things that you will be taking forward, some of the things you will be leaving behind, and how are you visioning the future of people coming together again and being in the same environments, those who currently aren't 
Well, I think on the practical side, there's no doubt that we will never return to full-time sitting in big open plan offices uh, and, uh, and operating in that way. The, the flexibility our workforce has shown has actually shown us that, in fact, maybe we're more effective we allow that flexibility to continue. So we'll undoubtedly be spending some of our time still at home, uh, even me, uh, and not all, uh, all time in the office or in the centre of Edinburgh, in our case. And I, so our best estimation is I have 2,000 people working in my headquarters. Probably that will never be more than 40% occupied at any given time is, is what our planning assumption is. And, and therefore, maybe we can share it with others and make much better use of what is a public asset, uh, undoubtedly. But I think the need to be better at partnership and much better at local partnership to work with third sector, with other public sector and the private sector colleagues to make our communities more successful. And our new business plan suggests that we are going to try and do that by creating a whole concept about 20 minute neighborhoods so that you can walk to um, wherever you, whatever you need to get in terms of services. So whether that's a library or a doctor's surgery or a shop or a, or um, any of the local authority services. And the thing we found most successful for the most vulnerable in our society has been that we set up five what we called community resilience centers, but they were a mixture of third sector our services and some private sector services to do things like distribute food, look after homeless people, um, do the people who had mental health crisis, and actually also give some space for our colleagues who were struggling to deal with the work at home ethos, which of course um, doesn't suit everybody. So we're trying to think how best we deal with uh, actually more vulnerable members of our staff, uh, our colleagues who, who um, need to have that social interaction to work effectively. Being your best at what you do is sometimes dependent on having interaction with other people. So the partnership is the, the big, big issue but also our ability to move more swiftly when we need to and not find a bureaucratic way to make that slower. And I think we'll need to learn uh, how we do things. What it has done for us though is it's reshaped how we think the next few years should be. So we have a, a business plan that um, says that the prevention of poverty, the um, sustainability, uh, as in low carbon, net carbon, net zero, but actually community wellness is right at the heart of that business plan. And they're the three major priorities in the business plan. And that's a, quite a big change of philosophy about just delivering services in that way, about thinking through holistically how you deal with the most vulnerable in our society. And even though Edinburgh is a very successful city economically, even during COVID, much more successful than most places, we still have something like a quarter of our children in poverty and that's likely to increase, unfortunately, due to the fact that businesses will undoubtedly have to shut down when furlough finishes and those type of things. So we are uh, working very, very hard at finding the right way to support um, our community, certainly over the next five years, while it recovers to being, a, again, to being a successful, thriving city. Make it a fairer city, which, of course, we set a, a long-term city vision for the council, uh, for the city, a long, long time ago. Uh, with the citizens of Edinburgh, which talked about being a fairer city and allowing it to thrive as a community. 
and um, and doing that by being that whole mixture of of um, being connected to the rest of the world, but actually making sure that it still continues to do the thing that Edinburgh is um, actually famous for, which is just innovation and and doing new things. And uh, hopefully that will continue to be the case. It's great to hear that and that the experience that we've had in in the last year, particularly and and for the short foreseeable future hopefully has really shaped reshaped your thinking around the business plan for the next three to five years and thinking beyond to vision 2050 when we first met Andrew in 2015 working with you to develop the leadership that sense of partnership within the community and of helping people to be their best being very much part of vision 2050 for Edinburgh and I wonder what resonated so strongly with you with the approach that you and I uh, help people to embrace in their leadership that of future engage deliver it was very much about being very aware of how you lead in an organization and being more aware of at any given time being right in the proper place to allow you and i go back to my athletics to allow you to perform at your best which means you're thinking about how you're affecting other people is you're thinking about how your team operates you're thinking about how your leadership affects the rest of the organization and its customers and I think the whole issue about um, sometimes you need to be in future, but quite a lot of the time you need to be engaged with what's happening round about you, but also make sure you're delivering what you said you deliver. Uh, and sometimes all three at once. I thought we had uh, lots of very engaging sessions, Annie, as part of that um, process and getting people to think in that way uh, and help my, bring my team together. I think the Principles are good ones, aren't they? Being future oriented, which is, of course, we have to be, but actually making sure that we are engaging with those around us and making sure that they are brought along if, or, or even with in whatever you're trying to deliver. And uh, but making sure at the same time you deliver. And that's stuck with my team. So that was uh, quite a number of years ago now. But we still talk about future engaged deliver in our daily uh, management meetings. We still use that framework, both online and in our management teams, uh, to think about things. It's really good to hear that because it is about conscious leadership. And one of the things you haven't mentioned is that every year you take time to reflect. So not only do you... Uh, continue to use the approach future engage deliver but you already had a practice of reflection of becoming yeah. more conscious and i don't just do alone of course um i i think reflection at given times well actually regularly is a very good thing anyway and i genuinely believe that the best leaders whether they're world leaders or whether they are those that reflect a lot about um you know, how they are with other people, how they affect other people, what they do with other people, how they do it, and how effective they need to be personally. Maybe it is something about um, what I've learned from athletics. I'm not sure it's entirely, but it is was about you have to reflect whether your training's working and making you run faster or slower and, and, and all of those things and what's stopping you running faster and what's stopping you, you know, what's making you run slower, those type of things right at the beginning. But I have for quite a long time, well, considerable amount of time done a number of things and one of which is certainly every year I sit down and I first of all look at how I believe I've lived by my own values the things I think are important and I actually score myself out of 10 
against those values. If I thought that kindness was a value, then how kind have I been during the year? Is that a five out of 10 or a, or a 10 out of 10? You know, and usually somewhere in between, hopefully. And also about things that I, I value that allow me to do both my work and be successful personally, how do I work with my family, how I've been with my and my work colleagues, and how have I lived with those um, values? And then, actually, I write, and I do literally write five or six pages, which just reflect the whole year before. And I sit and just scribble. There's not any particular structure. You know, what happened last year? What was good? What was bad? What would have been better? And then sit and plan um, clearly about what I'm going to try and do this year and set goals every year. And then I, um, that's embedded by the fact that I sit down every month and do that. So I look at that, that which I've written down and look at it and say, okay, what am I doing? What have I done this month that's delivered those goals or not? And what's held me back? And, um, and I can, the last bit of that, which is even more granular, is that actually my wife and I sit down on a Sunday night every week and say, what are we doing this week together? And it's not just diary planning, which it partly is, of course. It's about say, what are we trying to achieve this week and whatever else, and we do it, that together. So it's a kind of personal way of going about life, which, you know, found suits me, certainly. So, uh, and hopefully, and I, I do think what it helps you do is reflect about not just what's making you successful, but actually the things you're doing that are stopping you being that way. And because in a private space, you're able to be a bit more self-critical than perhaps most people would be able to be in public. Uh, and um, you're able to say, okay, I, I could have done that better. Here's what I'm going to do to fix it or do something like that and that type of thing. And and the last thing is that I do use what many people call mindfulness now, but I, I think you know this, that I mind map everything. I don't take linear notes. I draw little pictures of almost everything. So my 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 uh, notebook for work looks like, a, looks like an art book, really, because it's all different colours and different pictures, etc., because that's how my mind works, and I've learned that from many, many years of uh, doing it, that um, I'm really awful at writing down big lists and then delivering them. But if I put it in a picture, uh, I'm more likely to pay attention to it and more likely to do it. So those type of things. I love that, Andrew. I love uh, the practice of reflecting. I hadn't appreciated that you actually do that every month. I had thought you only did it kind of once a year on the year and for the year ahead and it's a great practice to do that once a month but yeah. also to to do it with your with your wife for the for the week ahead I often talk about leadership being as much about who you're being as what you do and it sounds as if this practice takes in both it's yeah. about how you're showing up as well as what you're doing you mentioned another practice around the mindfulness that helps you steady your yeah. nerves. Do you have a third practice that you would encourage listeners who are looking to grow and develop their leadership that will help them? I think paying attention to how people are feeling, how people are, and those that work around you and those that work with you. It's very, very important. And, and, and if anything, that's been given more emphasis by the crisis we've been in because, you know, several of my senior colleagues under severe stress, I put it that way, 
and being able to recognize that and helping them cope with it and asking them about it even sometimes. It's about actually paying attention to what they're feeling, how they're saying things as opposed to what they're saying. Uh, and those type of things. Probably the last 10 years, I've done more of this, but actually studying what that looks like, what emotional intelligence actually means, uh, you know, what, what the signs you should be looking for when people are thinking or feeling something and, and doing it that way, but not, um, and then taking action. But the other thing really is about making sure there's a, a bit of um, self-love needs to go on as well. I think if you're going to be a successful leadership, so I spend every day doing some kind of physical exercise to keep me healthy. Uh, and um, uh, Annie, when I met you, I wasn't quite as healthy as I am now, as I, I think you know, that's five years ago. And, I, and I've learned that I cope much better when I'm healthier and, and much more like my former self of being an athlete, but not just physically, mentally, um, that you look after yourself and find ways of taking a break from work. I go out and walk. Every time I break from a meeting, I go and walk around the garden just to walk around the garden for a couple of minutes and then go into the next meeting, etc. And it's a way of just resetting my mind and, and being there and not being in front of a screen for 24 hours a day, which is what happens sometimes. Thank you, Andrew, for being so open. I'm imagining that there may be listeners who would like to get in touch with you. Something you have said may have really spoken to them are people able to do that yeah okay. no, no problem with that at all they can get to me i'm andrew.care.edinburgh.gov.uk that's uh, that's probably the easiest way to get me i will make sure I, I get back to people i'm very happy to do that i think it's Lovely. really important we try and uh, deal with those issues thank you for your generosity thank you for your kindness can you say your email address again Andrew? Yes, just my, in case my email address is andrew dot care that's k-e-r-r at edinburgh.gov.uk thank you andrew for being in conversation with me today if you'd like to find out more about me go to annietownend.com if you'd like to have a conversation with me do email me on annie at annietownend.com if you'd like to find out more about future engage deliver then do listen to the podcast with Steve Radcliffe and look up his book, Leadership Plain and Simple. If you'd like to find out more about Edinburgh, do go to edinburgh.org. And if you'd like to find out more about the great work of the council, please go to edinburgh.gov.uk. Thank you for listening. <laughs>